Pilgrims actually landed in Plymouth specifically because they were running out of beer. So the entire settlement of Plymouth was a beer-based decision? Absolutely. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today's episode is an audio remix of a Thanksgiving special I did for the Travel Channel back in 2008. It's sort of a lost relic of my travel writing career, and it hasn't been broadcast in its entirety any place since it first came out. It actually works a little bit better as a podcast than it does as a TV show anyhow, for reasons I'll explain here. In a way, it's kind of a weird anomaly that I ended up hosting a history-themed Thanksgiving show for the Travel Channel. After the groundbreaking success of Anthony Bourdain, the Travel Channel had actively begun to recruit working travel writers as hosts in 2007, and I went to several interviews and auditions in New York that year, even though I didn't have a particular ambition to be on television. I shot some screen tests, one of which caught the attention of a London-based production company, which cast me as the host of American Pilgrim. Now, since my travel writing career has always been more focused on vagabonding and independent travel and destinations in distant parts of the world, I'm not sure why the Travel Channel tapped me for a history show. And to be honest, I'm not sure that any travel writers even came close to being the next Anthony Bourdain, in part because Tony was such a singular and charismatic talent, and in part because even as they were recruiting travel writing specialists, the Travel Channel tended to stick them into fairly conventional shows, which is why I guess I ended up hosting a show about Thanksgiving instead of a show about vagabonding. Filming American Pilgrim was actually a lot of fun, and the end result was an educational show that covered a lot of the basic facts of what happened to the Pilgrims. Along the way, I explored why beer was more important than water on the Mayflower, I examined why Pilgrims were required to bring guns to church, and why the original Thanksgiving dinner almost certainly didn't include turkey. The show involved traveling around the U.S. interviewing descendants of people who'd sailed to America on the Mayflower, including a chef, a sailor, a brewer, a minister, a farmer, a builder, and a soldier. I also talked to some native Wampanoag people, but it felt like the final edited version of the show gave short shrift to the tenuous guest host dynamic between the pilgrims and the indigenous people, which was way more complicated and to my mind way more interesting to what ended up on screen. This might well have been due to the limitations of television, as well as the fact that the Travel Channel tends to put a fairly generic spin on all the topics it presents at the expense of more nuanced and rigorous reporting. Still, as a podcast episode, it makes for a solid introduction to what really happened at that first Thanksgiving. I cut out a few sections of the show that didn't quite make sense without visuals, including the entire sequence with the house builder, which sounded a bit vague as pure audio. If you're interested in seeing the full video version of the show, the only place you can currently find it online is in my Deviate show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate, where I've embedded not just the full episode, but a couple of never-before-seen short outtakes, including a 2008 military training exercise at Fort Hood and an extended interview excerpt with a Wampanoag activist going into more depth about what was at stake for the indigenous people who hosted the Pilgrims. I never did end up becoming a travel TV personality, but I have continued to write books, all of which make great gifts this holiday season. Vagabonding in particular makes a great gift for the aspiring travelers in your life, as does my more recent book Souvenir, or my travel essay collection Marco Polo Didn't Go There, or even my travel-themed comic book The Misadventures of Winneman. More about all those books at rolfpotts.com deviate. While you're looking for holiday gifts, you might also consider a travel backpack from my sponsor Tortuga, which has a fantastic holiday sale going on right now. 
Just go to rolfpots.com slash tortuga to see their selection of travel backpacks and backpack accessories. And if you see something that would make a great gift for someone on your list, that rolfpots.com slash tortuga address will automatically create a discount at checkout that saves you 20% on purchases of $200, 25% on purchases of $300, and a 30% discount on backpack products amounting to $500 or more. The sale lasts until December 21st, and if you order by December 15th, you'll get free ground shipping and delivery before Christmas. Tortuga doesn't usually do holiday sales, so this is a great chance to save money on a great product. Because of COVID, you might want to order on the early side to make sure it arrives on time. Again, just use rolfpots.com tortuga to look through their selection of travel packs and get the discount at checkout. All right, guys, now broadcasting for the first time since it came out 12 years ago, here's a podcast remix version of my old Travel Channel Thanksgiving special, American Pilgrim. When you sit down to your Thanksgiving meal, do you ever think back to that intrepid group of pilgrims who made it all possible? There are now around 35 million Americans who can trace their lineage back to those original 102 souls who set out for the New World on the Mayflower nearly 400 years ago. This is their story and the story of their descendants who have gone on to make America what it is today. When we think about the pilgrims, we associate them with Thanksgiving. Of course, the original Thanksgiving meal was a lot different than the modern holiday we celebrate now, and the quaint old stereotypes we have about that first feast aren't really so accurate either. I'm Rolf Potts and I'm a travel writer. I've always had a fascination with the history of travel, and if you look at the conditions the Pilgrim Fathers faced, it makes the challenges of today's travelers look trivial by comparison. I'm going to be journeying around the United States meeting the descendants of those original pilgrims in an effort to better understand how those early travelers shaped the nation we know. First, a bit of second grade history. This is Plymouth, England, 1620. The good ship Mayflower set sail with a full complement of crew and 102 pilgrims. They're all listed on this plaque on the side of the inn where they are reputed to have spent their last night in England. This shows just what a diverse group they were, with vital professions ranging from carpenters, barrel makers, soldiers, and sailors, to the slightly less useful camlet merchants and fustian makers, whatever they may be. It has to be remembered, though, that these people were religious separatists, and their overriding purpose was to find a place to practice their own form of Puritanism without interference from church or state. They were aiming for the Hudson River, but ended up establishing a colony 200 miles up the coast from their intended destination. This small settlement went on to lay the foundations for the development of the most powerful country on Earth, with descendants spreading into each and every state from Massachusetts to Hawaii. Not bad for a group of people who've been described as 17th century hippies. This footage shows the journey of the Mayflower too, a replica of the original ship that was built and sailed over the Atlantic by the British and presented to the American people in 1957 as a thank you for the help we gave them during the Second World War. The Mayflower II has been moored in Plymouth Harbor for over 50 years now. It has become part of the Plymouth Plantation Living History Museum, which includes this remarkably accurate recreation of the original Pilgrim settlement. It also features a Wampanoag Indian home site which depicts what life in America was like before the Pilgrims. I'm on my way to North Conway, New Hampshire to meet with Bryant Alden, a chef who's a descendant of John Alden. 
Bryant can tell us a little bit about how the Pilgrims really ate that first Thanksgiving and what he's doing to bring that famous meal into the 21st century. North Conway is a lovely little town at the edge of the 700,000-acre White Mountain National Forest. It's a popular summer vacation resort as well as a center for winter sports. This year-round tourist trade keeps nearly 100 North Conway restaurants and cafes in business. Bryant has developed a novel twist on a la carte eating. He creates custom-designed meals for takeout with the help of his wife, Patty. Well, from the looks of it, you have more than just a restaurant here. You sort of have a country market meets gourmet fast food going. We, we really do. Patty and I spotted a gap in the market, took some chances, just like the pilgrims did. You know, I guess like, that's a pioneer in me, you know, that was passed down through the generations. Uh, we do a, a variety of prepared meals to go. So it's sort of gourmet fast food. It's, it's a great alternative to fast food. Now, how did you find out about your ancestry with John Alden? It was from Nehi as a child, the family reunions. I grew up about 20 miles south of Plymouth Rock, and we just, it was always drilled into me in the importance of the heritage. Well, I see up on the wall that you've had quite a bit of success as a chef. I, I have. The one that's most dear to me is the one in the center, which is uh, for Chef of the Year, voted on by my peers, so that holds a special place in my heart. But so it's like the New Hampshire Oscars, where uh, the, the Academy of, of Chefs come in and uh, they voted you in. They did, they did. But guess what? It didn't take too long before Brian had roped me into helping him prepare his own special twist on a Thanksgiving dinner. You know, the first year of the pilgrim survival at the plantation was all about the food, and that's what I do on a daily basis. It's all about the food. So you're carrying the legacy? I'm trying to. Mm -hmm. The stereotype was turkey, but this is duck. Did they eat duck on that first Thanksgiving? Yes, actually, they had a large amount of waterfowl. There was some wild turkey, but the only documented items were the waterfowl and venison, deer. Okay, all right. You know, but there was a lot of fish there as well, right? There actually was a, a, a wide variety of seafood there. The pilgrims actually brought over the wrong size fish hooks. So was it the fish hooks were too big then? They actually were, yes. The pilgrims had a tough time catching the fish, and it really wasn't until uh, Squanto came to live with the pilgrims that they actually had some success with the fish. Prior to that, it was a lot of mussels and clams and lobster that they ate. Careful, that's hot. Do you need a cup of ice? <laughs> no, I'm okay, I'm okay. I should know at this point that kitchen stoves are hot, but you know, it's not my specialty. Okay, so there's a the sauce. We've got our venison going. The clams look good. Let's go to the turkey and touch base a little bit about turkey. So it's not baked. We boiled it. We made a turkey pottage, much like they would have back in 1621. Put it in a big pot with the vegetables, simmer it, cover it perhaps, and let it just strew all day long. Set it on the table, bones and all and they just had a feast with it. Now, do you cater Thanksgiving meals? I do prepared meals where people will order their Thanksgiving dinner, pick it up, ready to warm and serve. So they have a complete Thanksgiving dinner with an hour's preparation at their house. They don't have to spend two days preparing the whole meal. I do that for them. It's Thanksgiving outsourcing is what it is. Exactly. I guess the big question is, how long until we can eat this? We're getting close. It'll just be a few minutes. We'll be on the table before we know it. It looks awesome, man. I can't wait. Time to So with the table loaded up with all these fantastic dishes, I joined Patty, Bryant, his sister, and the kids for this unique take on a Thanksgiving meal. Since there's no such thing as a free lunch, I was asked to say grace. Ralph, Ralph you, had a, you had a very nice 
um, quote that you had in your notebook. Would you mind reading from the quote? That's true. I'll let the pilgrims say grace. I actually transcribed a little bit that uh, Edward Winslow wrote, and he said, by the goodness of God, we are so far from want, which I think was basically his way of saying, thanks to God, we have plenty to eat, because we didn't have a lot to eat last year. Cheers! Cheers! Cheers. I'm back in Plymouth to meet John Brewster. John is a direct descendant of William Brewster, one of the religious elders of the Mayflower. Uh, William Brewster, he was uh, the religious leader of the Pilgrims. Uh, he was the one who probably wrote the Mayflower Compact, and he was also one of the first to sign the Mayflower Compact. The Mayflower Compact was basically an agreement among the Pilgrims of how they were going to live their lives, how they were going to govern themselves, and how they were going to uh, basically make the colony work. Well, Brewster was uh, involved with the Mayflower Compact, but you're really more in the tradition of uh, Master Jones, who was sailing the ship. I am, yes, spending probably most of my adult life out at sea, sailing around the world on many ships. I did a couple years in the United States Navy, and then basically moved over to the United States Coast Guard. And then I had the opportunity of becoming the uh, enlisted navigator on the Bark Eagle. The Eagle is used in training cadets and how to work as a team, how to work together, but she is also a full cutter. She's available for search and rescue. She's available to do any of the missions of the Coast Guard. You sailed in the Coast Guard and you've also done work on the Mayflower too. I did. Uh, for the Mayflower too. I am her ship's carpenter and main mess captain. And what we're going to do is we're going to come about here in just a minute and I'll bring you aboard and give you a quick tour. That sounds fantastic. Coming about. The Mayflower 2 is a remarkably popular visitor attraction here in Plymouth, welcoming over 300,000 visitors a year. It is still seaworthy and John sails on it regularly. The last time that I sailed her, we took the original 57 crew uh, that sailed her over from England. We took them out to Provincetown. Do you get to cheat at all, or do you have to sail it exactly no, like no, they no, sailed no, it? No, there's no cheating. There's no engine on board. There's the no Mayflower outboard too. that you can There's turn. no outboard. Uh, we set sail, no wind. That's it. So same, same challenges and conditions that yes. the Pilgrims had. They arrived in Massachusetts, but that's not where they intended to arrive, right? They were heading further south um, near the Hudson River. They came on a northern route across the Atlantic uh, to avoid pirates. So they kind of ended up here and then they were gonna sail south. Uh, at the time, aiming for Cape Cod was a good target to aim for uh, because you had that huge landmass. So even if you were plus or minus a few miles, you hit land. When I look at the ship here, I mean, this isn't that much bigger than a basketball court, but you have a lot more than 10 people at work here. You had 102 yes. people, and how many crew were here? Uh, probably around 25 to 30. And the crew mainly would have stayed above decks, and then the passengers all would have stayed below decks. So they couldn't come up and stroll around and sit in a deck chair or no, 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 sun no. themselves? No, none of that, and you know, no buffets or any of that fun stuff. Uh, just usually probably just below decks. It was usually dark probably smelled really bad, and um, the crew had it much better. We're going down between decks right now, and uh, this is where the Pilgrims hung out for most of their 66 days of the voyage, right? This is it. This is uh, where they were from when they boarded the ship to when they finally left. Um, this was home. This is it. For 102 people. For 102 people and some animals. We also have these nice little bunks, which you know some of the bigger ones would have been for a family. Um, you know, mom and dad, and then children up on top maybe or down below and then up here 
Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is pretty low. This is pretty low. Uh, the Mayflower was designed originally uh, to carry wine and other cargo. Mm -hmm. It actually would have been smaller. It would have been about five feet. So I would have uh, had to hunch. So there's not a lot of privacy down here. There is not. And you know, if you needed to use the chamber pot, you know, you just used your chamber pot. All right. All righty. It was only then that John told me that I couldn't consider this a proper visit to the Mayflower II unless I had climbed 70 feet up the rigging. How much fun this is. <laughs> Step on. All right. I can't imagine what it must have been like to do this in a howling right. gale with the boat leaning over at 60 degrees. My legs were shaking enough already, and we were still tied up in port. Join me after the break when I find the perfect cure for those shaky legs. where I do some essential research. Homer Simpson, eat your heart out. I'm here to meet Drew Brousseau, a descendant of Pilgrim Father John Alden. Drew owns the Mayflower Brewery, which, incredibly enough, uses water from the same spring here in Plymouth as his ancestor drank from 388 years ago. You had an ancestor on the Mayflower? I did. John Alden was okay. a uh, cooper on board the Mayflower. All right. His job was to uh, build and take care of the barrels that held the beer. Okay. It helped the pilgrims make their way here without uh, running out of something to drink. So you're carrying his legacy on. Here. We are indeed. Yeah. Is this the type of barrel that John Alden would have built? That's exactly the sort of barrel that he would have uh, built. Uh, in fact, in many cases, it might have even been larger than that. Uh, and they were critical to uh, ships in those days uh, to help uh, bring beer and, and uh, other uh, provisions over on the ships. In fact, they were getting kicked off the ship by the captain uh, because they were running low on beer, and the captain needed beer to go back to England on the return voyage. And so the pilgrims actually landed in Plymouth specifically because they were running out of beer. So the entire settlement of Plymouth was a beer-based decision. Absolutely. Yeah, in fact, there's a, a quote that we use on all our packaging that says, we could not now take the time for further search or consideration, our victuals being much spent, especially our beer. And the next day, they landed a plane. So that's sort of pilgrim speak for uh, beer stop. You know. <laughs> there you go. Time for a beer. <laughs> and how many different kinds of beers do you brew here? We're doing right now four year-round beers. Uh, we have a golden ale, a pale ale, a porter, and an IPA. Uh, and now we're also about to make our first Thanksgiving ale for this coming year. And how much beer do you make every year? This year we'll do about uh, 11,000 barrels, which is about 31,000 gallons. And is your beer going to be the same kind of tasting beer that they had back in the Pilgrim days? Well, the beer on ship was actually a very mild beer. It was low in alcohol and it was mostly there because it would stay fresh throughout the voyage. So men, women, children all drank it, and if it was too alcoholic, it'd be a little tough on them. I've done a little bit of uh, beer drinking research over the years, and I'm just curious to know, it sort of dehydrated me. How did the pilgrims drink beer without getting dehydrated? Well, again, it was, it was a thinner beer, so it wasn't quite as uh, heavy as just some of the uh, modern beers that you would drink. And it was really liquid and a meal. There's a very good source of carbohydrates in the beer as well. So it was critical to them. The, the water itself would spoil in the holds of ships in those days. Water was a source of bacteria, a source of disease in many cases. And so 
People just didn't drink water like we do now. And the bacteria, of course, is not in beer because it goes through a process of we kill it off. We kill it off the sterilization process during the uh, boil, and then the alcohol itself keeps uh, bacteria from forming, and the hops also act as a natural preservative. Now I guess I'd better do a little more research. Which one is the first one here? This is our nice light summer beer. I think you'll like that one. Okay. This is our pale. And there's India pale ale. There's a lot more hop in it because it needed to stay longer for a trip all the way to India. But I'll probably have to try the porter too. The porter is uh, is our brewer's favorite beer and uh, one we actually won an award for in uh, in London. As a journalist, I have to be thorough. So, all right. Well, cheers and thanks for cheers. showing me your place. As we say here, taste the history. Taste the history. Coming up after the break, I get a little help from above in tracking down another Mayflower descendant. Their lives were motivated and governed by a desire to exercise the power of God. From the earliest days of planning their journey to America, religious beliefs played a central role in the lives of the pilgrims. William Bradford wrote, We verily believe and trust that the Lord is with us. The pilgrims believed that a personal interpretation of scripture was more important than church belief or dogma. And this is a tradition that has influenced the way Protestants believe in America to this day. I'm back at Pilgrim Ground Zero, Plymouth, Massachusetts, where I've come to meet with the Reverend Bill Phillibrown, who's a descendant of Peregrine White, who was one of two babies born on the Mayflower. Bill is gonna tell us a little bit about how religious convictions shaped the lives of the pilgrims. Hello, Ralph. Hey, Bill. Good to meet you. Welcome to Chilton Congregational Church. Come in, let me show you the church and get acquainted. All right. The building was built in 1840. The church was founded in 1814. It is the ninth church to come from the first church of the pilgrims. Well, what is it about this church that's different from the pilgrim churches? I mean, I've noticed that you have a cross over the altar, you have some candles, you have a tapestry, whereas I heard that the pilgrim churches were actually very austere. They were. They would never have these kind of things. In fact, even the, you use the word altar, it would be anathema to them. They would have considered such things as blasphemous, bordering on idolatry. And one of the things you do see that's consistent in this church is that there are no stained glass windows because they wouldn't have had, had anything like that. Their worship, was, their worship and their meeting houses were very plain. Uh, was the introduction of things like hymns and, and crosses controversial or did they just slowly make their way into the church? It was kind of a metamorphosis that took place over time. And um, although change comes very slowly to New England, I'm sure it took time for those things, and they were argued uh, long and hard in, in the life of the church. How did you end up in, 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 the, in the ministry? Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I was born and raised here in Plymouth. And I grew up in the church in the center of town, and I was just one of those typical kids getting into trouble without really much interest in the things of God but there was a dramatic turning point in my life. And uh, God laid the town of Plymouth on my heart. And 25 years later, brought me back to be the minister at this church in the year 2000. The second question they ask you when you move to Plymouth, you know, the first question is your name, and the second question is, who do you go back to on the boat? My family traces back to four families on the Mayflower. Uh, in particular, uh, Samuel Fuller and Peregrine White, who was born on the Mayflower. In the, in the classic picture of the first Thanksgiving, it's the little kid inside the inside the, the cradle is uh, Peregrine White. And what was unique about the the spiritual heritage that the pilgrims created here? Well they were absolutely devout uh, in, in terms of their commitment to the things of God. 
uh, you have to realize that for them to leave England was actually illegal. The king was the head of the church and the head of the state. They were considered rebels. The pilgrims believe that God had an active hand in the matters of the world, and I can't help but asking, given what you're wearing, does God root for the Red Sox? Well, I, I joke with people that in order to be a true Christian, you have to be a Red Sox fan because we are acquainted with grief. I don't, I don't want to get into that right now. You're going to see me cry. If you, I, don't want to, I don't want to do that. I'm, I have to get ready for a service here a little while. This guy, that touches very close to home. Right, right. <laughs> Bill invited me to join him as he prepared for his Sunday morning service. How long do you expect your service to be? One hour. One hour. Yeah, and, and people, some of them even watch their watches, you know, so it, uh. <laughs> unlike our pilgrim ancestors. <laughs> so the pilgrim services were quite a bit longer. They were. They were six hours long, and next day they broke in between and took time for lunch. Wow, six hours. There was no football game or baseball game to watch in the afternoon. And, uh, Any other points of the pilgrim church service that we might find strange today? Well, it's interesting because when they sang, they sat down. We stand when we sing. And when they prayed, they stood up. And when we pray, we sit down. So that's quite different than what we see in the church today. After the service, I joined Bill at a regular event on the Plymouth calendar called Pilgrim Progress. This is a reenactment of the pilgrims on their way to worship. This procession is performed by various churches in the area. It was first done in 1920 on the 300th anniversary of the landing of the Pilgrim Fathers. Today we call this Leiden Street, but the Pilgrims called it First Street. And they built the houses of the settlement on both sides of the street all the way up the hill. And they called it First Street because this was the first street? It was the first street. Well, they're headed to the top of the hill, and they will, where the first fort was in the meeting house, where they will do a reenactment of a pilgrim worship service. Now, the guys are carrying guns, which is not a normal church-going activity that I know of, so can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, in 1621, when this is, it depicts, there was a concern about, uh, they didn't really know the native population well at that time, and there were also animals that were a concern, wild animals that were a concern. In fact, it was mandatory, and you were fined 12 pence if you went to church without a loaded gun. These really aren't the crusty old Puritans and pilgrims that we think of. Uh, what were they like? What was the character of the pilgrims? These were, these were young people. They were very idealistic. They were really driven by their, by their spiritual convictions uh, to the point where they were unafraid to take this enormous risk. I think if, if I had to, being a baby boomer, if I had to characterize them, they were 17th century hippies in the sense that they were prepared to go out and create this colony or this commune because originally they were communistic. So the hippies who drove their Volkswagen buses to Afghanistan in 1971 had nothing on the pilgrims? They really don't. They really don't. No, the pilgrims didn't have the music or the hallucinogenic drugs. <laughs> I don't even want to say that. But no, they were a very, a very different kind of people, much more serious, much more driven by their spirituality and by a, a much more solid ideology. Can we join them now? Yeah, by all means, you're certainly welcome. Okay. In many ways, Thanksgiving is a celebration of the spirit of cooperation that existed between the pilgrims and the native people who lived here. As in England, similar celebrations had taken place in native cultures for hundreds of years. To truly understand the American holiday, then, we need to have the perspective of those who lived here before the Pilgrims. I talked to Paula Peters, who is a descendant of the Wampanoag people, and also works at Plymouth Plantation. 
just prior to the Mayflower arriving here in 1620, um, there had been a village here. There had been a native village called Patuxet. However, in the year 1616, there was a plague, which we suspect was brought over as a result of trading with uh, European traders. Probably something as simple as smallpox, chickenpox, but because the indigenous people had no immunities to um, that illness, it wiped them out pretty quickly. So when the Mayflower arrived here, they found a great cleared land. I also chatted with Jonathan Perry, who's a direct descendant of one of the tribes that populated what is now Massachusetts in 1620. There's archaeological evidence of continual native existence in this place going back 13.5 oh, thousand years. There's a lot of quaint stereotypes that we learn about how the first Thanksgiving happened, but what kinds of lessons aren't being properly communicated, do you think? The perception that most Americans have about the original Thanksgiving is very much, you know, a hallmark holiday uh, where the native people and the colonists came together and they broke bread and sang kumbaya. And it's very much um, a, a very different story. There was, I think, a great deal of trepidation on both sides. They each found reasons, political and strategic reasons, to become allied to one another. In the early years of the colonies, you can very easily understand that the English are trying to figure out a way to fit into and become powerful within the native economy system that was in place. Um, even to the point that they started to use our shell beads, the, the wampum pieg and the sukwa pieg, the, the shell these, beads, like what I'm wearing right here, uh, wearing, or, or they were using those beads as a currency system. How might the native people have reacted to the pilgrims' religion? The English who settled here were not about converting native people and dictating to them how they should believe things, at least not from what we understand of it. But later on, certainly, there was a focus to convert native people. For us, we do not feel it is appropriate to dictate how other people believe uh, or, or have their spirituality and their focus and how they pray. What was the warrior culture like here before the pilgrims showed up and after they arrived? No concept of warfare in native societies can be likened to um, what was typically practiced in, in Europe of the time. The European people were probably seen almost like mercenaries would be seen today. Pilgrims arrived in the New World, their most important task was cultivating the land to grow the food that would keep them alive in the coming months and years. That is, after all, why they called the place Plymouth Plantation. But old world foods didn't always fare so well in this new environment, and they soon found themselves having to adapt in ways they hadn't expected. I'm in rural Connecticut to meet with Cortland Kinney, a farmer whose family has been working this land for generations. Cortland is a descendant of Richard Warren, but really he's the living legacy of all the pilgrims since agriculture played a central role in all of their lives. Cortland. Hi. Hey, I'm Rolf. How do you do? Good, good. So this cemetery has uh, a lot of your ancestors here, as I understand. Yes, it does. Uh, this gentleman is Rufus Church. He's a uh, direct descendant of Richard Warren from the Mayflower. Okay. It would have been his, his ancestor, Richard Church, married Richard Warren's daughter, Elizabeth. And that's your connection to the Mayflower? Yes, it is. His granddaughter was Julia, 
and she actually married my great-great-grandfather, and his name was Cortland. Kinney's name is yours? Yes. So it goes from the Warren to the church, and then Julia is where the Kinney comes in. That's correct. Okay. If you were looking for a typical all-American family-run farm, you couldn't do much better than this. The Kinney clan have been living here near the town of Griswold in Connecticut for over 300 years. Haying is one of the busiest times of year on the farm, and just like the pilgrims, when something needs to be done, the whole family has to pitch in. Bridget sometimes helps by driving the tractor or working with Brandon to load hay into the barn. This is a lot of hay. Is this, uh, is this a lot of your, your business each year? Haying is our primary business. Oh yeah? I, I notice you also have corn. The corn we have here now is strictly for cattle. We oh. used to grow sweet corn, but we haven't the past two years. So is that corn related at all to the, the sort of corn the pilgrims would have eaten back in the day? Not really. The corn they grew then was more for meal and, and grain. They, they ground it. The corn that we grew in the past couple years was for eating right off the cob. Oh yeah, the sweet corn. You know, I've come here and I see this beautiful farmland, but I think some people would come and see real estate. And have you ever been tempted to sell it off? I've never been tempted, but I'm sure other people would like to, but the property was handed to me this way and my job is to turn it to my kids intact, just the way it is. And that's been my goal all along. We're, we're happy, we, we have food on our table, we pay our bills, and we all have a, a good life. My grandfather told me something when I was a young man, probably about the age of my son. He said, don't ever get too full of yourself that you own this piece of property. Mm. He says, you're only a steward for the next generation. Join me after the break when I discover how the art of defense and security has progressed in the last 400 years. After surviving a long and difficult journey across the Atlantic, the pilgrims discovered what they considered to be a vast and intimidating wilderness. But this wilderness was full of people and not all of those people welcomed English visitors. This meant they had to make some difficult decisions about keeping the peace. I'm in Fort Hood, Texas to meet with Major Chuck Asadorian, who's a descendant of Isaac Allerton, who is an assistant to Governor Bradford in Plymouth Colony. Chuck is an intelligence officer with the 1st Cavalry Division of the U.S. Army, and who better to talk to when examining the security challenges that the Pilgrims faced. Since he's an intelligence officer, Chuck spends most of his working day in a command post. His weapon of choice is more likely to be a laptop computer than an assault rifle. And basically, it is information central. We gather information from the units, process it, disseminate it, uh, and then we assist the commander in decision making uh, on the battlefield. And what kind of information, what kind of intelligence are you gathering? We gather intelligence on uh, early warning. If the enemy's going to attack us, we can let the units know. We also gather information so that we can assist in targeting. But the Pilgrims just had one military leader with no support. By Miles Standish, he only had six to eight people that, that actually went with him to do reconnaissance in his missions, but he had the support of the folks that had, that had hired him to uh, serve as their military advisor and leader. And he had built fortifications uh, around 
uh, the Plymouth Colony itself, there were cannon emplaced, uh, which, which they did use at times. So there was a show of force uh, to prevent any attack. And the, the colony was never attacked because of the, uh, the professionalism, the rigor that he brought to the process. And he did have some assistance uh, in administration, and in fact, uh, that was my ancestor on the Mayflower. Uh, Isaac Allerton was equivalent to our S4, which is uh, supply and logistics. Uh, he was the bookkeeper. Miles Standish was known as uh, Captain Shrimp to the Pilgrims. That's one of the things they called him sort of behind his back. So what do they call you behind your back? I've been called a number of things, uh, the brain, the orb, uh, because of my, uh, my noggin. And, uh, and, you know, the, the intellectual nature of, of uh, S2 work that I do. One of the other things I'd like to show you is uh, some, of, some of the things that, uh, that we've got, you know, in our family history. This first one here is uh, Addison Goodhue, who's a descendant of uh, Isaac Allerton as well. He was born in 1814, but his son actually had some notes that he wrote. And I was able to use his notes. Uh, this is one of them here where he writes about his ancestry. And then about five years ago, I was able to find uh, the, uh, the link online uh, about uh, Isaac Allerton and the Pilgrims. So what is your brigade doing now, and then what will they be doing when they get to Iraq? We have several model villages uh, here on Fort Hood that we use for training. So the soldiers know how to enter and exit a room properly, how to clear a building, uh, identifying the next target, where's the next threat, who's this guy's buddy. Different types of groups, different types of threat groups, and, and it all parallels things that we will see in Iraq. These aren't old salty guys, these are young soldiers moving in. Certainly they are, they're very young, and, and that's why we're trying to give them the experiences now. It's very similar to what the, the uh, pilgrims went through. They were also uh, very young at the time. You had to be hardy to uh, survive in the wilderness. The thought I'm left with is how this sophisticated military might is in many ways the legacy of those few determined settlers nearly 400 years ago who also had to learn how to defend themselves against threats that weren't always as simple as they might have wished. In many ways, those old Mayflower travelers are still with us, not only in the fact that we celebrate Thanksgiving, but also in the DNA of so many people who still live here. Indeed, America is still growing, in part because of seeds that were planted so many centuries ago by a small group of people who took a chance on a new place. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including an embedded video version of the full episode of American Pilgrim, plus a few outtakes, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. American Pilgrim was produced and directed by Peter Wisdom of Pioneer Productions for the Travel Channel in 2008. Jamie Broom was the assistant producer. Colin Fox did the camera work. Paul Heller did the sound. The podcast remix of American Pilgrim was edited by Justin Glow. Jan Futterman and I did the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>